As we begin this morning and come to our text, it was the great philosopher, the tin man from the Wizard of Oz, who said hearts will never become practical until they become unbreakable. Less of a philosopher, but no less influential. Four and a half decades later, it was Tina Turner who would ask, who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? At the heart of those issues, and I mean that with no pun intended, at the heart, though, or at the center of these quotes, is an attitude that suggests what is the advantage of the heart to me? What's in it for me to love others, essentially, is what these are saying. These questions, rather than identifying love as selfless, make love a selfish act. It is contrary to the love of God and the love that he has displayed towards us. And I would even tell you that it nullifies the type of love he urges in our own lives. And this morning, as we advance through Colossians, we come upon this text, this call to put on love, understanding both its complexity and its superiority. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. And I want to bring to you a message that I have titled, The Clothing of God's Children. As always, I ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 3, and I'm going to begin in verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of the Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You may be seated. When the California gold fever broke out, a man went there and and leaving behind his wife in New England along with their young son, he decided he would go and as soon as he was able, he would send for them, sending them the money and paying the way. It was a long time before indeed he succeeded. But finally, the money arrived, and he sent for them, and the wife's heart leapt with joy. And so she took her boy to New York, and they got on board a Pacific steamer to make their journey around the Cape and over to the Pacific side, all the way to San Francisco. They had not been long at sea until somebody had cried, fire, fire. And indeed, throughout the ship, there was a fire that was spreading rapidly. And it eventually gained on them. And 
the captain, knowing that there was a powder magazine on board, feared that if it reached that powder, everybody on board, man, woman, and child, would perish. So they got into the lifeboats, determined very quickly that those lifeboats were too small to save them all. And in a minute, each one was overcrowded. As the last one was pushing away, a woman came up and, and started pleading for them to take her and her boy. And indeed, they said, wait, we can't. We already have more than we can hold. And so she earnestly entreated them. And at last, they said, we will take one more. Of course, she would know that as a parent, she didn't leap into the boat herself. Instead, she seized her boy and gave him over, saying one last thing as she hugged and kissed him. She said, my boy, she said, if you live to see your father, tell him that I died in your place. This is genuine love. It is steep. It is sacrificial. And it is selfless. Genuine love always comes at a high cost. Love will cost us financially. It causes us to allocate our resources to care for someone else, much like we do with a child. Love will cost us our pride. It requires that we set aside our own self-sufficiency, our own self-satisfaction, and instead find it in someone else and for someone else. Love will cost us our desires. Forsaking what it is that we want for the wants and needs of another. Love will cost us our heart. It creates great emotional chaos in our lives. From great joy at birth to great sorrow at death. And sometimes, as we saw here, love will cost us our lives. This is genuine love because it is genuine action. As evidenced by scripture, the, the Greeks and the Romans, they had different levels of love. While in the modern era, love is frequently reduced to nothing more than emotions or feelings, true love is seen in action. And it is thought of in varying degrees or varying levels. We see this when the Greeks and the Romans used different words for different types of love. There was the intimate love like that shared between a husband and a wife. There was brotherly love, a love exemplified by close friendships. And of course, the highest love of all is the love of God and the love from God. Because he is perfect, God's love is also perfect. Because he is kind, his love is kind. Because he is merciful, so is his love. The love of God comes though at the highest cost of all, costing the life of Jesus Christ. Such divine love motivates human love. And this morning, as we continue on in our text of Colossians chapter 3, we once again return to the Christian clothing. In verse 12, you will remember that the Apostle Paul writes to put on, put on compassionate hearts, put on kindness, and so on, he lists. And then he breaks away briefly, as we saw last week, and Paul addresses the Christian's conduct. 
namely through forbearing with one another and forgiving one another. But now we turn to that clothing once again. As Paul once again in verse verse 14 here writes, put on. This time though he says put on love. I want you to note first in our text the priority of Christ-like love. The priority of Christ-like love. Paul begins with the phrase, above all. It's as if he's trying to highlight the superiority of love over all things. In verse 12, again, he has exhorted believers to put on five characteristics. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Each of these is a noble virtue. Each of those is an attribute of excellence imposing on the individual who wears them like garments to also become excellent in nature also. Yet as essential, as exceptional, and as excellent as each of these virtues and these attributes are, Paul elevates love above all. To the Galatians, Paul writes, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love. While compassionate hearts may be our undershirts and kindness our dress shirts and patience our pants. It is love that acts like the belt that holds all of those garments together. Without it, not only do we look sloppy, we risk becoming undressed. It has a love that keeps everything together. It holds everything into place. Without love, all other things are meaningless and worthless. If we remove love from who we are, from what we do, we've stripped it of any value it may have had. I cannot help but think of an expensive car. One that has a bunch of power that is known for its speed. We think of the Ferraris and Lamborghinis. But if you remove one small piece, like the battery cables, the car no longer runs. You take away its power. And thus, you've taken away its value. Indeed, you might be able to sell it for parts or scrap metal, but you took a million-dollar car down to even 100000 or 50000 That's what we see here. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 speaks of this for us. Turn with me there. Turn with me to our scripture reading of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. First Corinthians chapter 13 is the most well-known passage, the most cited passage on the topic of love. And it affirms this idea of removing love and losing value. Verse 1, it says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, and in verse 2, And if I have prophetic powers, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to, re- to move mountains, and then verse 3, If I give away all I have, And if I deliver up my body to be burned. If I do all of those, but then each verse is followed by, but, but each one says, 
But if I have not love, he says, I am a noisy gong. I am a clanging cymbal. I am nothing, and I gain nothing. Love is critical to the Christian life. And then look, how does that well-known chapter even end? As the effect of love is proclaimed throughout the whole chapter, verse, uh, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. How does Paul end that proclamation? In the end, in verse 13, he says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Why is love so critical? Why is love, the virtues, the virtue to be put on above all other else, the essential element to all other attributes and activities? 1 John 4 8 gives us an answer. It tells us why. Because God is love. Just as we discussed a few weeks ago, that if you remove God, then you cannot have love. And now the reverse is true. If you remove love, you cannot have God, nor his son, Jesus Christ. God doesn't define love, nor is God defined by love. God is love, which means you cannot separate the two. Each of these attributes in verse 12, remember that when we discuss those, they were both exemplified and effectuated by Christ. He not only displayed each of these characteristics, Christ consummated these characteristics. They are made possible and they are made right by him. And so when we remove love from this list, we remove Christ, who is God. And what we've done is extracted from them their force and their power. With these two seemingly insignificant words, above all, Paul is establishing the durability and the priority and the superiority of love in the Christian life. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 points this out, pointing to the durability, saying love endures all things. Love administers all attributes and activities. It acts as a guide of how we engage in Christ-likeness. And so with this phrase, above all, we see the priority of love. Of all aspects of character, love is the first in importance. But it's also superior because it regulates all other attributes. And so love administers all attributes. John MacArthur writes, Love complements and balances everything else. It is the beautiful, softening principle. It keeps our firmness from becoming hardness and our strength from becoming domineering. It keeps our maturity gentle and considerate. It keeps our right doctrine from becoming obstinate dogmatism and our right living from becoming smug self-righteousness. Do you hear what he's saying in that quote? Love tempers all things. Everything that's good in us that also could become a danger of sin is made right by love. Think about it when disciplining a child. 
That is a loving act to discipline a child. But without love, what does it become? It becomes nothing but harshness and anger. There are many admirable qualities that make up the Christian believer. But it is love that must be both paramount and preeminent. And so we see the priority of Christ-like love. I want you to note, second, the picture of Christ-like love. The picture of Christ-like love. Moving from the words above all, we go to put on. With those words above all, Paul establishes the priority. He establishes love as the cardinal tenet of all the Christian graces. It is the most important aspect of all the characters that a Christian is to clothe himself in. But its true value is only realized when it is put to use. If love is not the disposition, if it's not actually placed into action, then it's meaningless. One of the most extraordinary characteristics of those who follow Christ is their love, the love they have for Christ and the love they have for others because it is born out of God and born out of God's love. We may bemoan the hatred of the world and the division and the violence that is going around. But if we ourselves aren't living contrary to that by putting on love, then we're not better off and we've not contributed anything to society. And ultimately, we do so by calling attention to the love of Christ. Love is the most powerful tool available to us to neutralize all that is wrong. Because it brings people and it brings their circumstances before Christ. 1 Corinthians 13 again, it speaks of this power. Look again at the text and notice all the things that love is able to do in what we read. It says love is patient. Love is kind. Love is humble. It overcomes envy. It overcomes boasting. It overcomes arrogance. It overcomes rudeness, it overcomes selfishness, it overcomes irritableness, and it overcomes resentment. And then it says love bears all things, love believes all things, and love hopes all things, and love endures all things. There seems to be no end to this list of things, this list of actions, and and yes, action, not emotion. There's no end to the list of things that the action of love can accomplish. This is why Paul exclaims that the whole law is summed up by love in Galatians 5.14. And all he's doing is merely repeating what the Lord Jesus Christ already established in Matthew 22.36-40. When asked what is the greatest commandment, Jesus replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The entirety of the law is summed up by the activity of love. It is summed up by the love because the character of love overcomes all things. It is love that brings out 
that compassion. It is love that brings out the kindness. And it is love that brings about the humility. And love that brings about meekness. And love that brings about patience. Love is the basis for the character in verse 12. Love is also what allows for forbearance and is the foundation to forgiveness in verse 13 of Colossians 3. In our text this morning, it is love that brings about the unity of verse 14. And next week, we'll see that it is love that brings about the peace found in verse 15. It is it any wonder then that in Romans 13.10, it declares this attribute of love to be the fulfillment of the entire law. It was, after all, God's love that fulfilled the law of sin and death. Peter declares, love covers a multitude of sins. We like that verse. Because it was the love of God that covered our multitude of sins. It was the love of God that sent his son as a spotless lamb of sacrifice to make atonement for our sin. The power of love is most profoundly displayed in the love of God. Look back again, once again, at Colossians 3.12. And remember the description given to every believer. Colossians 3.12 begins, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. They are loved by God. And this love is seen in the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And now this same love, the same love that God displayed towards those of us who believe, upon the sufficiency of that work in verse 12, we're now asked to bring about a display of that same love towards others in verse 14. That is to say, it is the love of verse 12, the love of God, that we are to put on in verse 14. No doubt what Paul is asking the Colossians to do is a very difficult thing. Remember, they were living in the midst of false teachers, and those false teachers are seeking to infiltrate the church, and false teaching always divides. Whether it's in the church or in the community, false teaching will always cause division of people. I think the last two years of the testimony of our nation prove that. And so in the midst of this turbulence, at the church in Colossae, Paul calls upon them to put on love. How difficult is that? How difficult is it to love someone when you're all riled up and frustrated? But instead of sowing more division through anger, they're to bring about unity in love. And let me make it clear, clear very quickly that love does not leave false teaching unconfronted. They're just to do it in a manner that dignifies the Lord. The call here is to put on love, the same love that God lavished upon us. Believers are to walk in love as Christ did in his own life. Notice what Christ said in John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, 
if you have love for one another. That's virtually repeated two chapters later in John chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. It says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no, has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The standard for love is Christ himself. And so while the Greeks and the Romans each had these different levels of love, the love here is unique, different than all these other types of love, because it is the only love found in God. This love is found in no one else except God, and it is the same love poured out on salvation or at salvation. And therefore, it is the only love defined and displayed by a commitment of self-sacrifice. Earlier, I mentioned Romans 13.10, citing it as one of the many verses that signifies that love is a fulfillment of the law. Turn with me there, Romans chapter 13, to look just a little bit deeper. Romans chapter 13, look at verses 9 and 10. They say, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. But notice how this verse begins. Verse 8, Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Scripture speaks much of money, urging really that the wise person should avoid debt. But also, various times we know that sometimes it may be necessary to have debt. But it says to pay back what is owed quickly. And then in Romans chapter 13, we come to this discussion in verses 1 through 7 on the submission to authorities. And within that context, Paul writes of paying them what is rightfully owed and paying to people specifically what they are owed. He says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. And it is with this teaching in mind then that we come to verse 8. And he writes, owe no one anything. Owe no one anything except love. Notice a permanent obligation then of love. This is an ongoing action to owe love. We can never say that we have satisfied God's requirement to love. Or as Leon Morris would say, we can never say, I have done all the loving I need to do. Love is the ongoing responsibility of the Christian. Because love is the nature of our relationship with the Lord. It is the nature of our relationship with others. Richard Phillips writes, Loving one another requires us to bind our temper, 
to speak in ways that build others up, to turn from envy and contempt to respect and goodwill, and to sacrifice readily for the well-being of others. Never would we desire that God restrict his love towards us, and neither should we restrict our love towards others. I want you to note, finally, the product of Christ-like love. The product of Christ-like love. Our verse in Colossians three fourteen says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Genuine love is known by the outcome it produces. And in this case, authentic love then is known by authentic unity. The connection between love and unity is established elsewhere in Scripture. Paul's not introducing a new concept to the Colossians. He's reiterating something he already knows to be true. Peter writes, all of you have unity of mind and brotherly love. Elsewhere, Paul has written to the Philippians. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Therefore, it's reasonable to conclude that where there is genuine love, there is genuine unity. It's not sameness, but soundness. Unity doesn't mean uniformity, as in every individual must be exactly the same. But look at that first word, bind. Bind, meaning to bring together two separate items and fasten them together. In chapter 2, verse 19 of Colossians, the word bind is pictured as a ligament or a tendon that fastens the head to the body, indicating that although they may be two separate objects, they are bound to one another. And such is the nature of God's love when it is lived out in the body of Christ. It brings together seemingly disparate objects and secures them to one another. It is a love that binds the Greek and the Jew. The love that binds the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And the barbarian and Scythian and slave and free that we see in Colossians 3.11. What Paul speaks of here in verse 14 is is like stitching together individual blocks. Pulling one and adding it here, and then pulling another and adding it. Each is unique, each is different. But when they're assembled, they produce a quilt that provokes wonder. Almost bewilderment at how these individual pieces can construct something so lovely. My illustrations displayed for me, thanks to the ladies. Clement asks, who can describe the bond of God's love? Indeed, who can describe the bond of God's love? It defies logic that two people, two completely opposite individuals, can come together in this way. 
How is it that those who are contrasting and conflicting and disparate and divergent, how can they exist together? It's because the love of God creates unity. Where the culture sees uniformity as love, Christ sows unity in love. Notice it. Not only does it bring about unity, but what does our text say? It does so perfectly. Our text reads that love binds everything together in perfect harmony. A more literal translation of the text is bond of perfection or bond of perfectness. This unity lacks nothing. It needs nothing. It's not too much. It's not too little. Unity in a secular sense is always bound by the people participating in it. What do I mean by that? Consider our secular world. When it seeks unity, it has always done so tainted by sin, because people are sinful. And so often it is done selfishly, and it's initiated by selfish motives or seeking a selfish outcome. It is done so to bring about conformity to one another. Ultimately, the unity the world has sought out by humans' hands is going to be tainted by the sin of humans. But this unity spoken here, this unity in verse 14, it's sourced from Christ. Consider Colossians 1.17. And speaking of Christ, it says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Perfect unity is possible when it is found in the perfection of Christ. As a source of love, it is he who brings about that genuine unity. And so this unity shouldn't be tainted by sin because he is sinless. Shortly before his death, our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing what was coming to him in these upcoming hours, knowing that he was going to be arrested, knowing that he was going to face persecution and beating, and eventually he would encounter a torturous death. As he comes to this point or that point in his life, our Lord does exactly what we would expect him to do. He comes before God the Father and offers up a lengthy prayer. And he says in the midst of that prayer these words in John 17. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be the one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me. That they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved me as you have loved me. Unity was more than a subject of Christ's prayer. It's a revelation of God's will. It has been God's intention that his people would dwell together in unity. For what purpose? As a revelation of his glory and his love. That is to say that unity is meant to be a revelation of the Lord. Our unity should draw people to him, not to us, but to him. This is a complete picture of love. 
I began this morning with a quotation from Tina Turner's song, Who Needs a Heart When a Heart Can Be Broken? If you know that song, then you know the preceding lines to that are, what's love got to do with it? What's love but a second-hand emotion? Well, we learned this morning that's wrong. Love isn't emotion, first off. And certainly love is not second-hand. We make light of this glorious gift of God when we treat it as such. No, love is not an emotion. Love is an action. And even more, it is a primary action here, according to Paul, above all. Love is a priority of the Christian life. And so rather than secondhand, love is elevated above everything else. So Tina Turner was wrong. She's not the only one. Eight years later, in 1992, Patti Smith and Don Henley would collaborate. And they would sing, There's a danger in loving too much. Sometimes love just ain't enough. I grant praise to my Lord out of gratitude that he never said there's a danger in loving too much. Had he thought this, he would have spared his son and I would have suffered. Instead, I was spared and his son suffered. It is only by receiving this great love that any of us even know how to love. Had it not been for this great act, we would be unable to fulfill our text, to fulfill this call to put on love. And the product of love is unity and perfect harmony. This love that is put on, it brings the body of Christ together. So yes, love is just enough. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are grateful this morning, grateful that you are a God of love. God is not, her love is not merely a definition of your character, but rather it is part of who you are. And, and Father, we're great recipients of that love. May we not take it for granted by ceasing to love others, Lord. But rather, Lord, may we openly and willingly give the love you gave us to those around us, Lord. We pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.